Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. I hope you had a wonderful start to the new year. And I'm very happy to share this episode that is special for multiple reasons. This is one of the few episodes when I had the conversation in person and that was also video recorded with a fireplace in the background on a very cold day. So you'd be able to watch this conversation as a video on the PM Power YouTube channel as well. Today, I'm in conversation which was recorded in November 2022, much before ChatGPT was made available to the public and the subsequent increased interest in large language models. My guest today, Stephen Aberle, is a founder of a company that is in stealth mode, working on domain-aware large language model-based processing for very niche applications. In this conversation, Stephen shares how he joined the military halfway through college and then went back to finish his studies, getting interested in IT during the military service, also navigating away from the back-end to the front-end work, focusing on how users interact with systems and getting into usability areas, and being in the Washington DC area, getting to work on defense-related areas. And while working on large defense proposals, the need to be technical, unique, and bring out the uniqueness of the proposed approach was something that he was naturally doing. The challenge for small technology companies to break into the defense procurement space and how the whole process of writing proposals was something that could be daunting for some of them created a spark of an idea. He also shares a couple of challenges with open large language models, which is about the the training being only on open content available, thereby missing the, the contextual insights that are more valuable. And also, none of the data that is generated can be attributed to the source material in like an explainable AI. I asked him about his own career and the progress where he has been into different topics over uh, different uh, stages in his career, how he organizes his own learning, even when moving across specialization areas. He said that it is always about data and his experience with IT, particularly ETL approaches, including working with unstructured data, about being a full stack engineer and being aware of many areas and not really being an expert in all of them, but then pick some things where he can go much deeper to be a T-shaped individual. And how he considers the transformers approach as the next big wave in IT after the cloud that happened a couple of decades ago. The concept 
or role of a solutions architect and how that may be implemented in a large language model is something that he shares. Other aspects related to large learning models and content and data more than just text to also include images, figure descriptions and how those can be handled. And how the generative AI has made the life of say graphic designers or UX specialists much easier where uh, it can also be used to capture conversations with solutions architects, use a transformer to generate a proposal language based on that, etc. Listen on. Yeah, hi Stephen, welcome to the Software People Stories. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. How are you, sir? Yeah, good. <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right, we've got video going. And yeah. so that, that's a, a relatively new thing for your podcast. Mm -hmm. We are in St. Paul, Minnesota today. And it's somewhere around uh, eight degrees out. And uh, yeah, we so, do have a nice fireplace. But and and we, got, we have the fire going in the background. Yeah. Uh, and this is our home. We, uh, my home. And we'll have kids uh, pitter-patting around. Uh, all the kids are together and um, running around having a good time. So yeah. uh, you may get a, a cameo guest appearance from some of the young ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a new one for you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so before they get through here, yeah. you could start with your origin story and how you got associated with, let's say, IT solutions or what you've been doing. Yeah, your career trajectory. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's um, that's a great question. So I, um, uh, let's see. So I went to college for a couple of years, right? And I think this is a pretty typical story in the United States uh, and you run out of money. Uh, very quickly. So I went to college for a couple of years and then I uh, joined the military. Hmm. And so I was in the military for about four and a half years. I, I went back and, and finished, <laughs> though after that, I kind of programmed that they had for veterans. Um, but when I was in the military, I certainly had an interest in um, information technology, right? Hmm. And, you know, that's a little bit where I started out uh, as well in, in my collegiate journey. And it sort of led down this path of, you know, I started out in computer science and I really, really loved design. I loved the ability to create code that could then transform into some visual item that someone would click, right? And, you know, of course, that's um, interaction design, that's human computer um, you know, interface, HCI, and um, user interface design, all those things. And uh, so I found myself sort of drifting farther away from the back end as mm -hmm. I went throughout my career uh, into the front end and the design of things and how users interact. And it consumed uh, quite a bit of my career. But where mm. I got where I am today primarily was, um, you know, being in... The Washington DC area, mm -hmm. you know, here in the United States, and you're an engineer, you're a software engineer, you sort of just naturally get uh, sucked up into this world of defense and aerospace, right? It's kind of it's where all the jobs are uh, for for kind of young people and, and yeah, young one of the largest spenders as well, right? Defense. And they spend quite a bit of money, right? Yeah, in in defense and in aerospace world, and they're doing just so many different. I mean, they're built planes, trains, right? Uh, 
the the bombers, the fighters, the the equipment, the tanks. But then in you know the public space and the intelligence space, all the software that's built um, that helps protect the nation, you know, and you know the wonderful things that that uh, are done there from a software standpoint, you know, all of that's kind of aggregated in the the defense and, and aerospace world. And so um, when you're introduced to that world, mm -hmm. uh, you learn a whole lot about a thing called proposals hmm. and capture and business development and writing proposals. On just about any given day in the United States, the way the government procures services, um, IT services mm -hmm. or uh, equipment or tanks or aircraft, right? All those things. Um, they do that through a process called RFPs and proposals, requests for proposals. There are like 30,000 of those things that come out every single day. There wow. are 200,000 companies that compete for that work. They all have one thing in common. To compete for that work, you have to write a proposal. And so I've been writing proposals the vast majority of my career, thousands of pages across 16, 17 years uh, in the defense industry. And that's because they have to be technical. They are uh, required to be unique, on-target, technical text that talks about how your company would implement any given service, any given product, <laughs> any given software solution. Okay. So the text must be domain aware, right? right? You know, the person writing it has to be really smart. And I've, you know, I've been doing this for a very long time, writing proposals. That's kind of the origin story, which leads me to where I am now. We created a piece of technology um, and kind of wrote a, a patent around it uh, called generative stitching. But basically what it does is it enables domain aware generative AI. <laughs> And probably everyone who listens to your podcast is going to be familiar with the large language model world, the world of large language models, transformers, and its ability to predict text, right? Uh, and it does a very good job at that uh, from you know, a mathematical standpoint. Really what's happening is uh, there are these amazingly large autocomplete algorithms yeah. where you can predict predict, sorry, a character in the sequence of a word and words in the sequence of a sentence, right? And predict sentences in the sequence of a paragraph, so on and so on. Uh, and I thought that these were just astounding because I've been studying artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, primarily, you know, the, the start, yeah, everybody starts out kind of in the statistical learning um, and then deep learning became really just something that took over the world in, in at least the, the computer science world in 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and was, I'd been experimenting with those and utilizing those. Um, and then transformers came along and, mm -hmm. you know, these, mul these multi-billion parameter uh, up to trillions now mm -hmm. parameter models that can predict text. And so I wanted to harness the idea of large language models to solve a very 
difficult and brutal pain point mm -hmm. that I had experienced mm -hmm. across all those years, those 17 or 18 years. And that is simply the number of resources required to write a proposal is astounding. Mm -hmm. These proposals you have to write could be anywhere from 60 to 120 pages. Mm -hmm. It takes a team of 20 or 25 people to do right. it. It's almost impossible for young small businesses who have great technology, they've created something new um, to, to break into the world of you know, defense. And it's part of what we call the, the valley of death, bridging the gap between technology companies and, and Department of Defense. And so I wanted to make that process more efficient. So again, we, we created a piece of technology that can look at domain-aware technology. Mm -hmm. or sorry, domain-aware data yeah. and feed it and influence large language models so it can understand a domain very, mm -hmm. very well. The problem, there's a couple problems primarily with large language models, is number one, they're not domain-aware. They're mm -hmm. trained on uh, pretty much the vast majority of text that's on the open internet. Mm -hmm. That means it's non-proprietary. It's mm. open. It's not very smart, you know, from a scientific standpoint. Uh, it's, you know, the majority of the internet is marketing copy. Mm. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's kind of what it can do. There's lots of systems and services that, that help you generate marketing copy. And I think that is neat mm. when I first e experimented with them, but that's where it stops. Mm -hmm. It's just neat. It doesn't know anything about me it cannot do domain specific tasks and that was a problem a major problem for me because i was trying to get it to write proposals it cannot do so unless you find a way to feed thousands of pages of domain um, specific data and then influence the large language models that's the first problem with yeah. large language models the second problem is um uh none of the data that is generated in uh, a generative AI model can be specifically attributed mm -hmm. to its source material, mm -hmm. ground truth, just the way that the, the model works, mm -hmm. right? It just, you feed it just tons of data, it learns to sort of predict. But yeah, the explainable AI kind the, of it's, it is the explainable AI piece. And so we kind of, we broke that barrier down where we can understand and know when the AI generates text um, because of the way that we feed it domain aware uh, data, how we structure, how we parse, how we normalize all of that data. Mm -hmm. We keep track of the provenance, if you will, of every zero and one. And when we generate language, uh, it allows our customers, our beta testers, because we're, we're a company that's still in stealth, uh, to know exactly where that language is being generated from. Mm. So when it generates an answer to a question, it generates an ask, answer to a new task, or it generates new language against, say, a new requirement or shall statement mm. from a statement of work, mm -hmm. then the user can trust the text that's being generated because they can open up the PDF to the exact page 
where the large language model then generated the text. Hmm. All right. And so that's what we're working on now. That How long was that? My wife, by the way, everybody, um, told a joke right before we started the podcast that uh, that I like to talk. And it's true. And I probably just talked for like 15 minutes straight, right? So um, my apologies. But um, but that's that's uh, what I'm interested in. That that's kind of where I come from. I have um, I've never been a CEO of a company before. This is the first company that I've started, uh, and it was solely based on this this huge pain point, this massive pain point that I've experienced for 15 years. And uh, myself and my co-founder, uh, her name is Chicha, unbelievably smart. We have written tons of proposals together for the last several years. Yeah. We knew there had to be a better way. Mm. Now, I think that's a, that is a very good reason to start a company, right? Yeah. Uh, to solve something that has just, the, everybody I know hates the necessity of the process. Right of writing proposals, but it must be done. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. And so if, if I can create some technology that makes that process more efficient, right. And, you know, turns what is kind of viewed as this brutal, painful process into something that, um, you know, might resemble a cathedral, then Mm. that is the purpose of our business. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, of course, this triggers a lot of questions because we've covered a lot Tons of questions. questions. Yeah. yeah, let's let's. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing is uh, conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. First thing is you said you know, starting in the military, getting into yep. human interface design, yep. and then getting into proposals, defense, and everything else, and the bleeding leading edge things yep. on AI and machine learning and all that. So how do you organize your own learning over the years? And right. either add to it or move on to different domains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that too, you've done it fairly quickly. It's interesting. Yeah. The, the, um, you know, one thing I forgot to kind of mention was, you know, along the way, when I was designing the user interface components for different types of systems, um, and, and many of them, I built a, a bunch of products. What I realized was it's all about the data. It is always 100 mm-hmm. percent uh about the data and so i kind of took a little bit of a detour into the world of etl extract transform okay. load mm-hmm. you know uh dealing with unstructured data because in the government and then the world of intelligence uh and in the world of corporate even right you, you've heard the statistics almost 80 percent of the entirety of the archive the corpus of data at any given company is unstructured hmm. now that's very hard to deal with, hmm. you know, on structured data. So I kind of took a detour into learning uh, everything I could about ETL from an unstructured data perspective. Hmm. And it turns out really that is, that's the key to create domain aware generative AI, hmm. right? The structuring, the normalization, the application of a multi-layer chain of algorithms that you know the first thing they do is optical character recognition right mm. ocr um then we look at the layout then we look at are there tables are, you know what figures you know what are the images mm-hmm. and you know one thing sort of leads to another where you realize over time that just about everything is connected 
in the engineering world. There are separate titles for things, mm. right? You know, you have a database engineer, you have a backend engineer, you have a right. you have a um, ETL engineer, you have an API engineer, you have a, a user interface. Um, but you've got to know them all. You've got to have an understanding of them all if you're truly uh, going to get at a very specific pain point and create a service that users love, mm. right? You have to understand uh, many different facets. And, you know, sometimes people talk about it uh, in terms of being like a full stack engineer, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, uh, you know, that that means a little bit something different, uh, I think, to me. But, you know, if you're a full stack engineer, um, you know, how focused can you be on any one given thing? And sometimes it just takes time yeah. right, to learn all that stuff, to, to learn that everything's connected, that that um, that it's all about the data, you know, the data, uh, which is, you know, step zero of a serial process that could be a, a hundred steps long. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that is a user clicking a button, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it all tracks, making sure that button does what it's supposed to do, it tracks back to the data at step zero, mm -hmm. right? So that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, you know, ev everything is interconnected and you have to, uh, learn to to kind of take those hits as they come and be fluid and you know go from one area to the next and maybe not be as uh, you know a, a, an expert as you might want to in one very specific thing mm -hmm. right but if you can be multidisciplinary full stack and kind of understand that entire process um, then you're you're on your way to, to being a very yeah, so good programmer. What is, what is your secret sauce? You, know, you talk yeah. about you know, T-shaped individuals where you have the breadth on many things, yeah. but then probably go deep into a few things. You got to go deep, yeah. yeah, when it's required, sort of, what, you know, what when you find something that, that clicks. And when I began experimenting with transformers and large language models, I went deep, deep, mm -hmm. deep, deep. Mm -hmm. And they were just starting, you know, uh, even back when Elon Musk was the CEO of, of, of OpenAI, mm -hmm. right? And he had, he had floated that company and their purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Back then, they were a research organization that were trying to bring about AGI, artificial mm -hmm. general intelligence. And, you know, AGI implies multi-modality. And the first thing that they tried to teach it was to speak mm -hmm. and uh, see. So speak is GPT-3 and, and 4 and 1 and 2, and C is things like Dolly, right? Mm. And so the, so I went super deep, sorry, um, in, into large language models, understood how they're trained, how they're influenced. And uh, you can take those, these detours in mm. your career, and they are very, very good things, right? Mm. Um, but everything that you've done leading up to that point, you know, will help you be very good at whatever you're, you're going to focus in on uh, at that point in your career. But for me, I was just so convinced that trend, I mean, transformer, it, here's what I say before we, we go into the next question. This is super important, I think. And I've told people this a lot that every 25 years, a transformational profound technology gets unleashed to the world of enterprise business. Mm -hmm. 25 years ago, at the turn of the century, it was cloud, mm -hmm. right? 
the, and even before AWS, rack space, you know, the, all, all the, the, the progenitors yeah. of, of that era, right? And of course, then Microsoft does Azure and AWS and, and GCP. Um, that was a profound transformation in, in the world of business. And now at the turn of the century, right? Or, or now at, at the quarter century, right? To, you know, 2020 through 2025, I believe transformers are the next transformational change hmm. in the world of business. And I'm, I'm sure of it, right? Um, from what I've witnessed in its ability to be assistive mm -hmm. to the human, right? Hmm. It cannot replace the human. Um, not quite yet. And I think we're, we're far away from that, but it can, it can create huge efficiencies Hmm. um for humans in uh the business world right uh like what we're trying to do with our company mm -hmm. here okay yeah uh any solutioning like you also mentioned that uh, there are different specializations and either back and front end or particularly for systems integrators when you have to bring in different uh, pieces together there's always a chief architect sure so when you do this through generative ai and you feed it in a lot of these things because all the specializations are very different. It's also about how they all come together. Yep. And you did mention some of the the clauses, the shall clauses. That yeah, shall there, statements. Right? Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, one, interpret that, create a point of view, and then generate your proposal? Yeah. So we have different capabilities that, that we've built. Um, inside the software and one thing that we've built is called uh the um the solutions architect the mm. ai solutions architect oh, okay now uh when you are generating proposals it is certainly really important about what you've done before as a mm. company we call that past performance mm. right how have you implemented this solution now if you take a large language model that understands language, hmm. human language, then you should be able to pass it different types of adverbs that can significantly out influence mm -hmm. uh, its output. Hmm. Is, am, are, was, were, being, been, have, has, had, do, does, did, right? Hmm. These are very important words. So how have we implemented hmm. IT services versus how should we implement mm -hmm. this technology, mm. this technology set, right? Then it's an indicator for the AI to adjust how it should predict mm. the text. Uh, and then we can pick up on that human input. How mm. should mm. we implement this piece of technology? Then reference all of the technical solutions that they have built before. Mm then allow the system then to be creative, mm. change some settings mm -hmm. in the, the model parameters, right? The model mm. settings, um, this thing called temperature sometimes that we adjust that roughly corresponds to creativity. Mm -hmm. And when a user says, I need help, there's just, we don't have information specific to this. We haven't solutioned this before. Mm -hmm. And- um, Yeah, that is going to be my next question. I need, yeah. yeah, I need to ask, the system then to be creative for me. Mm. But this is what a computer does much better than a human could, mm. your architect, mm -hmm. right? Which is 
at any given point in time, mm -hmm. I can immediately recall thousands of artifacts and objects mm -hmm. that are specific to how my company has solutioned against any mm -hmm. given problem set at any given time. Mm -hmm. And I can do that in somewhere around 0 0.03 seconds, 30 mm -hmm. milliseconds, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, then then we let the large language model take over and and be creative and solution. And so that role of solutions architect, um, you know, over time at these companies, because they all have large stables of solutions architects, mm -hmm. right, have built dozens and hundreds of solutions and put them down on paper. Mm -hmm. And what the large language model then does, what it allows you to do, is learn from their experience and learn mm -hmm. from what they've written down and how they solution to any specific problem set. Mm -hmm. And now once I have that, and what, what Rohirrim does that is different is I can take all of that unstructured data mm -hmm. and feed it into the model. Then the model can then predict how your company could solution a new mm -hmm. problem set that it's not seen before. Wow. Right? Yeah. yeah. But one thing is, at least at that level of creativity of problem solving, yeah. the solution architects may use more than just words. 100%. They may use diagrams, they may use tables, they may yeah. use data and all that. Yeah, yeah. So how... So that's right. Yeah. Now, of course, so large language models are very good at um, talking, mm -hmm. right? So that's text. Um, but then also the uh, vision modality. Mm -hmm. Uh, site. Mm. And when we ingest documents, uh, you know, we'll things like open CV and edge detection for images. Mm. So we'll crop images out. Mm -hmm. And also there's a figure description, right? Okay. In proposals. And that figure description describes what's in the image. Mm. Well, now that I've cropped out the image, why don't I OCR of it? Right? Mm. Uh, okay, now let's take it a step further. What is this image related to? What paragraph heading is it related to? What's the text above and below it? Mm. Now, now we've got to what we call multimodality. Mm -hmm. So I know what an image is. I know the text around it. So I know the language. So if a solution architect is trying to generate an image, create an image, or even just find the most relevant images they've, they've created before, mm -hmm. based on feeding it an image uh, or a description, a textual description mm -hmm. of what they're trying to build, right? Mm -hmm. What they're trying to create. Then we will find the most relevant images mm -hmm. based on that textual description. Okay. Then we combine, and by the way, that's vec that's neural AI-based search. That's mm -hmm. vector search, right? Word embeddings in the vector space. Mm -hmm. um, Outperforms keyword search mm -hmm. by a mile. In, mm -hmm. in just about every category. But then um, then you look at then the transformer model mm -hmm. where then the user could say, I don't like this graphic. It doesn't cover what I needed to. Mm -hmm. Let me tell the language model. Let me tell Dolly how I would like this image to change mm -hmm. or be modified. Mm -hmm. And then the model modifies it according to your textual prompt. Is and it possibly good enough? also capture why? Right. So certainly that's associated to the text. Yeah. Right. But then what happens is, again, because this is this is a system, right? Then 
you've just cut out probably three or four works of three or four hours of trying to find that, that data, um, modify that data. Cause that takes a graphics engineer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, explain what this graphic is about because you've created language for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what used to take six hours, uh, now can take three minutes. Wow. Right. Mm. And then you get that, you get that description, that new graphic that say mm-hmm. the, the language model created or Dolly created back to the graphics designer, the graphics designer mm-hmm. takes over. He, they appreciate it a whole lot more because, oh, yeah. uh, you know, they don't have to interview you for three hours that's, about okay. what you're trying to create. So that's, um, that's interesting. Now there, there's one other thing I'd like to say is, Solutions architects are sort of famous for, you know, like you get a computer science degree, you go through an engineering school. It's certainly, it's about projects, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, there's, there aren't a ton of papers that you write. <laughs> you know, you got get to learn to code. Um, there are some papers, but a lot of them are much more comfortable talking mm-hmm. about any given solution or demonstrating a solution. Mm-hmm. So when you give a solution architect a task, mm-hmm of, listen, I have 10 shell statements Mm. or requirements. Mm -hmm. And can you write me three or four pages about how you would solution this? Mm. That is a very difficult task for them to do. They're looking at days, Mm. days. You get to stare at a blank piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're excellent writers, Mm. right? Maybe you get lucky. Mm -hmm. Most of the time you do not. So then what you'll get back is like bullets, Mm -hmm. maybe. Well, I can take a bullet. And I can recursively expound on that bullet according to how your company typically solutions for things. Hmm. But then we can combine, uh, again, multimodality of these large models, um, vision, speech, but what about hearing, right? Hmm. Voice. And so why don't I interview that solution architect? Because solution architects oftentimes like to talk about mm-hmm. the solution. They'll go on for 30, 40 minutes talking about how they might solve. Try and get it on a piece of paper. Try and get them to write it on a piece mm-hmm. of paper. It's very difficult. So let's just press the record button for 40 minutes while the solution architect talks about talks it, about. right? Yeah. And then you press stop. Now you send that interview to the large language model. And because you know how the company writes their best proposals, mm-hmm. right? Take that text that solution architect spoke, turn it into mm-hmm. proposal language mm-hmm. via the large language model. Mm-hmm. Ask it to transform it. Mm-hmm. So again, the human never goes away. The mm-hmm. human cannot go away. Mm-hmm. The solution architect can never go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but these technologies can be assistive, mm-hmm. 100%. Okay. Yeah, since this is uh, domain-specific generative AI, yes, is there a possibility that let's say there are three vendors responding to an RFP. Right. Obviously the domain is the same. Yeah. And if they're all using your engine, right. Are they, are there possibilities that they would all be strategically same or similar? <laughs> That's a great right? question. Uh, and a lot of the customers ask the same question. His answer to that question and a lot more, including some questions that he asked me related to startups, effectively making this as a, reversal of roles where the guest became the host on the next episode. Don't miss that.
We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.